you ever feel overwhelmed by the injustices that surround us? This year, in 2020, in the first six months alone, already our world has been full of challenges and injustice, including the global pandemic of COVID-19, the U.S. hitting a boiling point in identifying undergirding racial injustice at the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and so many other people of color. By the beginning of July, there were more than 20,000 deaths to gun violence in the United States, either by homicide, murder, suicide, or accidents. And that's in the middle of a pandemic. How can Christians even begin to respond to the injustices that we witness? How can we not become overwhelmed and give up hope? How do we creatively confront the injustices that we encounter on a daily basis? I'm Mae Cannon, and this is Hashtag Activism. I'm really grateful that today's episode approaches the many questions of how racism, gun violence, the death penalty, and other justice issues of our day intersect. Intersectionality is the idea that systems of injustice overlap and are interdependent, often further perpetuating discrimination and disadvantages. Poverty is directly connected to gun violence. Gun violence is directly connected to systems of incarceration and imprisonment. The death penalty isn't devoid of our history of racial discrimination, and one's likelihood to die on death row often depends on geography and the color of one's skin. In the midst of all of these realities of injustice and discrimination, how do we not become overwhelmed? What is the call on the lives of Christians in terms of how we should respond and maintain hope when it seems like challenges in our world are just overwhelming and never-ending? Our interview today is with an old friend of mine, Shane Claiborne. When I thought about who could help us wrestle with these questions, I couldn't think of anyone better. Shane's ministry of creative confrontation addresses multiple issues of justice, including calls to end violence and war, addressing homelessness, dismantling racism, ridding the U.S. of gun violence and the use of weapons, and abolishing the death penalty. I was first introduced to Shane when I was in pastoral ministry at Willow Creek Community Church. Shane had just been on the cover of Christianity Today and was shaking up the evangelical world because of his book, The Irresistible Revolution. When I first met him and heard him preach, I was struck by his admonishment to the church. What if we actually lived like we believed the very words that Jesus was teaching? He told the story of being moved by the ministry of Mother Teresa in Calcutta. He wanted to go and to learn from her about the teachings of Jesus. So what did he do? He called up the Sisters of Charity and guess who answered the phone? Mother Teresa herself. He went and served alongside of her in Calcutta. Later, he founded The Simple Way in Philadelphia and he's the leader of Red Letter Christians who are committed to living out the Red Letter teachings of Jesus. When you and I met many, many years ago, I was a young staff member at Willow Creek, and I will never forget the sermon that you gave, calling people to act out our faith in Jesus, and you called people to leave the shoes that they were wearing behind to Mm. give them to people in the city of Chicago. And 
I was so moved. I don't know if I ever told you how moved I was seeing mm. children, you know, parents went and got their kids <laughs> from Sunday school uh, to go and get their children's shoes. And, you know, thousands of pairs of shoes were left behind. And it was one of the first times I, I met you and encountered you, but also heard this impassioned lived out faith in Jesus. So you've been doing that for years. I've seen you do that for years. When we did that at Willow Creek, it was one of those moments where you kind of, you, you know, you just have this sense of, I really think this is the direction we want to go. And the backstory was that, you know, there's thousands of people as a huge, you know, congregation. So we were, the, the idea was we want to do something concrete, you know, maybe we should make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I was like, you know what, I think like, People on the streets I know get plenty of peanut butter and jelly, but they could really use some good socks and shoes. And that's, <laughs> you know, kind of, get it. I remember uh, Jen Hatmaker, I think it was, had some really nice cowboy boots and she always laughs about uh, imagining who's wearing them now, you know, but yeah, that was a beautiful moment. And for me, you know, it was inspired by Mother Teresa's feet, which were terribly deformed. And I learned that it was because she went through the donations and picked out the worst pair of shoes and took them for herself so that, you know, the best shoes could go to other folks, especially to people that might be, you know, on the streets. And she, she had that idea that when you give to the poor, you should give the very best because you're giving it to Jesus in disguise. <laughs> you know, so we, we thought we wouldn't give people much of a heads up so they'd wear their best shoes and then we'd take them right off of them, give them to folks downtown in Chicago, right? <laughs> and it was right after that, you know, that we started the simple way here on the north side of Philadelphia and been here for over 20 years. But I, you know, I, what I'm up to these days is it, after being here 20 years, it's, it's great because it's, it's kind of like the roots are there in our neighborhood. A lot of things are just going really naturally. I mean, even in the pandemic, we've ramped up almost everything that we're doing to try to be present with, with neighbors. We're sharing hundreds and hundreds of bags of food uh, with people. And it's all run by folks that live here on the same block together. So we always say neighbors helping neighbors, you know, and we've been building this little village with community gardens and murals and abandoned houses that we're fixing up for, for uh, over all those years. But me personally, too, I've been doing a lot of work around, specifically around the death penalty and gun violence. And this is why, is I, I've always, you know, kind of loved the language that we're pro-life, you know, that we're for life. We sort of have the audacity to say the author of life cares about it. And, you know, and any time someone's dignity or life is, is squashed, God takes that personally. But I, I grew up, you know, down south with this idea of, of being for life that was just narrowly kind of focused on abortion. And I think a lot of pro-life folks might be more accurate to say that we're pro-birth or we're anti-abortion. And, and, you know, because the irony is you can sort of be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, anti-environment, you know, pro-war and still say you're pro-life as long as you're, you know, don't don't like abortion. But I, you know, so on the issue of death, the death penalty and gun violence in particular, I found that Christians have been one of the biggest obstacles for life. You know, we, we own guns at the highest rate of any demographic in America, white evangelical Christians are the highest gun owners, uh, gun owning demographic. And when it comes to the death penalty, what broke my heart is that 
the death penalty has survived, not in spite of Christians, but because of us. 85% of executions are happening in the Bible Belt. And, and you know, I think that underneath all of that uh, is, you know, theology, the residue of, of racism is, is kind of in, in all of this. So that's why I wrote Beating Guns and Executing Grace specifically around those two issues, because I'm not really a single issue person. But I think as I dug deeper on the death penalty and gun violence, I found that it surfaced uh, a lot of really important things, including the inconsistency of our kind of pro-life ethic. Of our theology of life. I mean, I, part of what I hear you advocating for, and I've heard you say, is that we should be champions of all life, not just these singular issues such as abortion. And I, I don't know if you know about my personal story, Shane, but one of the ministries I was responsible for at Willow Creek was the prison ministry. And so mm. I often say I learned to preach in Louisiana Correctional Institute in Angola. I spent a lot of time in LCIW, the Louisiana Correctional Institute for Women, meeting with people on death row. And I think the exposure to people who sometimes have committed heinous crimes and yet had the opportunity to be transformed and witnessing their humanity and what their life looks like often decades later, it was transformative for me. And talk to us a little bit. I hear you say often, it's not that we have a compassion problem, but that we have a proximity problem. You know, what's that mean as you talk about gun violence or as you talk about the death penalty or really being champions of life? What does proximity have to do with our perspective and our theology? Uh, right. And proximity makes all the difference in the world because I, I think if if we're not in relationship to people who are affected by injustice, then these are just issues to debate. You know, um, there there's scriptures to throw around. But when when injustice becomes proximate and for a lot of people, they're not this is not an intentional choice. You know, the color of their skin, their socio you know, economic location, whatever is like these issues have chosen them, whether it's, you know, police brutality or immigration or whatever. But for others of us, I think as our, our friend Alexia Salvatierra says, she says, privilege is being able to choose which issues you care about, you know, and which issues you ignore. Right. But re relationship makes so much of a difference. And, and I, I remember one of the wonderful lines of Mother Teresa, she said, it may be very fashionable to talk about the poor and still not as fashionable to talk to them. And mm -hmm. if we really care for instance, about immigrants, then we should know their names. If we are, you know, Jesus said, when I was in prison, you visited me. Uh, Hebrew says that we're to remember those in prison as if we ourselves were locked up with them. So, you know, when I look at Jesus, one of the most profound things that happens in Jesus is that the God of the universe becomes proximate. God puts skin on and, and lives among us, but not just in any you know, way. Jesus is born into the pain as a brown-skinned, Palestinian, Jewish person, baby, you know, refugee that's born into the middle of a time when violent man, King Herod, was you know, separating kids from their families, slaughtering babies. Like, so, in, so and Jesus kind of models that proximity in his whole life, uh, as he, even as into his death, as he's executed on the cross and suffers, you know, from a state sanctioned execution, you know, he's hung and put on display, humiliated and tortured 
and yet, you know, dies with, with love on his lips. I, I think really exposing that. So what that means for us, I think, is that I, I heard a preacher say so well, if we climb, if we find ourselves climbing the the ladder of upward mobility, we should be careful or else on our way up, we might pass Jesus on his way down. <laughs> you know? So so I think like Jesus is the most profound act of divine solidarity with those who are marginalized and suffering. And and what that really looks like for me, May, is is a, a young woman who lost her 19-year-old son in our neighborhood. And we took our services during the week of Easter into the streets. And we actually connected the suffering of Jesus with the lives that have been lost in our neighborhood to gun violence. And this young mother came up weeping and she said, I get it. I get it. And I said, what? And she Hmm. said, God knows what it feels like to lose Hmm. your boy, to lose your boy. And I, Hmm. you know, I, I heard another mother whose son was about to be executed. And she said, well, at least God knows what it's like to be right here. To, to see your own child wrongfully convicted and executed before your very eyes. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of folks who have suffered, they find this real solidarity of, of what, what, who Jesus is, even to the point that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> I mean, Jesus, you know, like that's, that's so, we can, contemplate that the rest of our lives, you know, that, that kind of God felt the absence of God. So, you know, th- this whole, this Jesus that we we follow is, is kind of uh, the gravity of the gospel takes us towards the suffering of the world. And that's why I think this proximity thing is, is so, so important because a, a lot of folks, it really is that the problem is that they, it's not that they don't care or they don't know what the scripture says. It's that injustice has not become personal enough. And until gun violence has names and faces, we'll continue to just, uh, you know, call this a partisan issue and, and, you know, talk about it as if, you know, the casualties are not real human lives, a hundred a day that are lost to guns in our country. And, you know, that matters to God. So I I think we can do better than that. And, uh, you know, and, and because of the place that I live, almost every corner of our neighborhood, we have the memory of, of who has been lost on these corners to gun violence. So I, I think where we locate our lives and who we're building our relationships with often influence the things that we care about. And even mm-hmm. how we think of some of these issues of justice, right? Of like, that's why when, you know, you ask white folks and black folks or people of color, you know, is system systemic racism a real thing? Like, does racism affect the criminal justice system? Does it affect how police, uh, you know, interact in our communities? And white folks overwhelmingly and consistently say, no, you got a few bad apples, but the system generally works. And you ask people of color and they overwhelmingly say, yes, systematic racism is real. Like, let me tell you a few stories, you know? And so we're seeing the world through different lenses. And I think until we have the humility, especially as white folks to lean in and to listen to other people's stories and realize that, you know, their social location may inform their theology and their lived reality may be different from ours. So, and and, yeah, we've got to, we've got to do that right now. I wish every systematic theology course would teach the type of incarnational theology. I heard you just articulate one of the things that I wrote down 
and as you were talking was just that Jesus is most Jesus is the most profound manifestation of divine solidarity. And that's what incarnational theology is. And I, I think that's quite profound. And one of the ways I've seen that witnessed in your life and ministry is what I heard you say is creative confrontation. How do you maintain a posture of love and kindness and the fruits of the spirit and yet address these injustices directly? And you do that head on. So what does creative confrontation mean? What's that look like? How do we do it? Absolutely. So I, I think the beginning, May, is, is realizing that, that Jesus put death on display not to glorify it, but to subvert it, right? To expose the principalities and the powers. And Colossians says that so well, that Jesus made a spectacle of death on the cross and triumphed over those principalities and powers. So Jesus absorbed the violence and the hatred and the evil of the world in order to show us the triumph of love. So love steals the show, you know? But it's that which I think, you know, as we think of what that means in our day, Dr. Martin Luther King said really well that we've got to expose injustice so that it becomes so uncomfortable that people have to respond. And there's ways that we've done that, that I I think, you know, one of the, the, things that's happened in our city is we, we've lost, we're losing about a, over a thousand lives every year to opioids. And, and every one of those I think is, is so tragic. But we also see like the drug economy in our neighborhood is, is the, the second largest economy here in Kensington in our zip code. And there's needles all over our streets and I, and, and it becomes normalized, you know, we, and so what we did was we remember after some kids were talking about having a sto- snowball fight and being concerned that they would find a needle in the snow as they're building a snowman or having, you know, making snowballs. And we're just like, that's not okay, you know? And so what we began to do to try to expose that is gather the needles from our parks and our neighborhood, and we put them in jars and we delivered them to our city officials. And so we delivered a a jar and we put epoxy in them. So they were all, you know, locked in and we put quotes from the kids on it. But then we delivered these jars of heroin needles to our mayor, our health commissioner, you know, (laughs) and even now our city council person says he's got it on the wall to remind him of how urgent and critical this is. And, you know, part of what we were saying is we've got to do something like this is not just a, a, a debate. This is a public health crisis. So, you know, I think whatever it is, we're trying to be creative. And certainly like with the guns, like you get so tired of the rhetoric and the debate. So we, we got really inspired by the prophets, Micah and Isaiah, where they, they talk about beating swords into plows and spears into pruning hooks, right? So like literally transforming the tools of death into tools of life. And uh, we don't have a lot of swords in the U.S., but we, we found that we've got more guns than people. We've got over 300 million guns. Some say it may be, you know, over 320 million guns now. And so we, we invited people to begin donating those. And the first gun that we got donated was an AK-47. And we, uh. we, we transformed it with some metal crafter friends of mine into a shovel and a rake. And now, like, we've just 
caught this vision. And my wife, Katie, and I have both been training. We're apprenticing blacksmiths and we're a part of a network called Raw Tools, which is war flipped backwards. And we literally all over the country are taking donated guns and turning them into garden tools. But what's what's also powerful is not just the symbolism, but we found, you know, we just did a 40 city tour with our book, Beating Guns. And every night we would take a gun uh, and transform it. And we invited people who had been directly impacted to tell their stories. And also if they wanted to, to take the hammer. And boy, I, I just, it's it's hard to put words to it, May. It really felt like a, a sacramental, right? And I don't use that word lightly, but that, that like there's something transcendent that was happening as we did this. And, you know, we saw folks that had survived mass shootings. We saw our our, our friend, Reverend Sharon Risher, her mom was killed and Mother Emanuel AME Church as they were worshiping Jesus. And, you know, this man came in and killed their family members, killed her mom. And she named every one of them as she beat on that gun, just weeping, you know. And another young man, as he, he counted to 18 and was very emotional. And afterwards, he said, I took the life of an 18 year old and Mm. this is healing my heart. So, I mean, that's what we're trying to create space for as we do these events. And no matter what issue we're focusing on, we're trying to um, honor the pain and the trauma and the, the, the grief of different communities, whether it's with the death penalty or gun violence or, you know, the opioid crisis and really like, let's surface the pain and let's also not just protest what's wrong, but let's proclaim how things can be right. And as my, you know, our friend Brian McLaren says, we 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 can protest, but we've also got to protestify, <laughs> you know. And that's what the prophets did so well is they 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 were naming the present and inviting us to build a different future from where we're headed right now. So I think that's the beautiful work of kind of prophetic witness, you know, is it amplifies the people that are suffering, but it invites us, you know, to, to build a future where there's less suffering. And so what is that invitation from you to those who are listening in terms of how can they engage if people currently aren't in proximity to some of these issues of justice and people who are affected by them, how might they get involved? I mean, we certainly can direct them to your books and to resources, but what types of things can people do to move beyond hashtag activism and to actually be in proximity and engage in this creative confrontation you're talking about? Yeah, that's a that's a great thing because I, I think we, you know, sometimes our activism can be very cheap. You know, I mean, just just like a, it's we we need more than tweets. You know, we need real concrete action. And so there's two websites that I, I think of them kind of like the two feet that I walk on. One of them is our local work which is just the simple way uh, and our website's the simple way.org and we're on social media on kind of all the forums there. And then the other is our movement work of red letter Christians and that's redletterchristians.org. I'm on social media too, but those, those are the two organizations and the movement work of red letter Christians. You're a big part of that. You know, we've got this whole group of leaders that are doing incredible work, whether it's on immigration or mass incarceration, the Poor People's Campaign. There's so many different ways that people can get involved by going to our website. And I'm particularly interested in, you know, folks that 
want to really take concrete action. So if you want to get involved and, you know, uh, like if folks want to join the network of, of returning donated guns and having them repurposed, you know, we can do that. Some of our friends that are living on death row, we we have uh, letter writing that's happening. We Every time there's an execution in Tennessee, we do a walk from death row, where I know many of the men there at Unit 2 at Riverbend, and we walk nine miles uh, to the governor's office, and we're asking him to you know, find alternatives to the death penalty, and they're still using the electric chair in Tennessee. So there's all kinds of different ways that people can get involved. But uh, I think some, one of my mentors said to me, the hardest part about running a marathon isn't getting to the finish line, it's getting to the starting line. <laughs> you know, So I really want to invite people to take, you know, just a small step. Uh, maybe it's writing someone on death row, or it's getting involved with a local group that might, you know, build a, a relationship with people that are struggling. And if you, you know, go to Red Letter Christians, you'll see all kinds of outlets for that. I love the quote that Shane mentions from Martin Luther King Jr. that we as Christians have to expose injustice until it becomes so uncomfortable that people have to respond. So how do we do that? One way is by entering into proximity with the poor and those who are directly suffering from injustice. When we're in relationship with people who are suffering, the teachings of 1 Corinthians 12:26 come to light. And we're reminded that one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. When we're exposed to the suffering of others, we are more compelled to respond and to engage in activities that will contribute to dismantling those injustices. If you don't know where to get started, pick up one of Shane's books. You could start with Irresistible Revolution. It's short, extremely accessible, or consider one of his more recent books, like Executing Grace, How the Death Penalty Killed Jesus and Why It's Killing Us, or Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence. Are you interested in how to respond to gun violence in the U.S. today? I write about this extensively in my new book, Beyond Hashtag Activism. One way is by working to get guns off the streets and out of our homes. If you have a gun that you would like to have decommissioned, consider donating it to Raw Tools, an organization that's committed in its efforts to move communities away from violence. Raw Tools actually takes guns and makes them into gardening tools, literally putting into application the words of the prophet Isaiah. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Raw Tools says about their work, it's not enough to just make a lot of tools from guns. We need to help teach each other new ways to solve our problems through relationship, dialogue, and alternative means of justice. Are you compelled to work for the eradication of the death penalty? Look up resources that Shane included in his book, Executing Grace. Come alongside or partner with and support organizations like Brian Stevenson's The Equal Justice Initiative, who are doing such great work to bring more holistic justice to the prison system. Or are you feeling compelled to respond to the needs in your own backyard? Look for local ministries in your community, like The Simple Way in Philadelphia, that are working with their neighbors to respond to issues their neighborhood is facing, like getting drugs off the street and out of their communities. 
Based in Atlanta, the activist, writer, and speaker Terrence Lester has an incredible neighborhood ministry that's seeking to address systemic poverty. His ministry, Love Beyond Walls, provides some really practical solutions and ways to engage in responding to homelessness and domestic poverty. The vision of Love Behind Walls is to provide dignity to the homeless and poor by providing a voice, visibility, shelter, community, and grooming and support services to achieve self-sufficiency. Links to all of these websites and ministries can be found on the resource page for this episode on my website at www.maycannon.com. There are so many incredible people doing great work responding to the needs of their neighbors and communities. May we be so inspired by them, by people like Shane, Terrence, and so many others who are committed to creatively confronting injustice in our own communities and around the world.